0: I have got more questions up my sleeve than I have time to answer tonight. So that's really good. We've got a few kind of priming the pump for next week, but add some more. Generally, if you ask me a question that is kind of a a general interesting sort of question, I'll try and answer it the following week, but if you answer, or I'll keep it up my sleeve, or if you ask me a question specifically on a question from the week before or on the talk before, I'll nearly always try and answer that the week straight after. That's the thinking. And so we kick off with this one. And that is related to Jephthah. And the first one, question one, is this. Since Jephthah was foolish to make his oath, why did he still keep it instead of admitting his folly? Well, as you heard last week, Jephthah made an oath to God that if he won the battle, he'd sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that came through the door when he got home after the war. And it turned out to be his daughter, his one and only daughter. It was a stupid oath he didn't need to give because it was already very clear that the Lord was with him and he was going to win the battle. And so you wonder why he didn't just say to God, listen, God, (laughs) I didn't kind of expect this. Um, It's a foolish oath. I'm sorry I made it. Um, Can I just sacrifice a lamb or a bull instead? Well, it turns out he actually could have said that. In the Bible's teaching in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Suppose you make a foolish vow of any kind, whether its purpose is for good or for bad. When you realize its foolishness, you must admit your guilt. When you become aware of your guilt in any of these ways, you must confess your sin. Then you must bring to the Lord as a penalty for your sin a female from the flock a sheep or a goat this is a sin offering with which the priest will purify you from your sin making you right with the Lord So he could have done it How about I didn't I learned that this week You see he could have done that but why didn't he Well, firstly, he may not have known. It may be that at the time of the judges, they had strayed so far away from the law of God, they didn't know this particular thing. And there was nobody in the community who knew it, which I find weird because they had two months before he actually carried this thing out. That's a two-month period when everybody knew about it and you'd think somebody would flick open their Bibles to Leviticus. Or perhaps it's the fact that he didn't want to do that because it meant that, he had to show everyone he was foolish and he was sinful and that he'd made a rash vow maybe it was because of his pride and he was such a proud man that he couldn't say he was wrong who knows but the question number two is related to this is why didn't God provide an animal for Jephthah instead of his daughter because that would have been easier well we don't know God's mind in this particular incident do we uh, but it seems that God did not choose to re- rescue Jephthah and his daughter uh, because of Jephthah's foolishness and pride. You know, uh, It means that it's in God's word for us today as a warning for all time not to make rash promises to God and to be prepared to acknowledge our foolishness and guilt when we make a mistake. Question three. If a spouse leaves the marriage without mediation... Should the deserted spouse seek to negotiate? Uh, This is a complex issue and deserves a much bigger answer than this, but the principle is that we want to do all we can to safely keep marriages together. Uh, If it is safe to do so, the deserted spouse should continue to try keeping the marriage together until it comes to the point that the spouse who left divorces her or him. Uh, They are solemn vows before the Lord. And where there's the offer of repentance and forgiveness, there is hope. Uh, But let me again say that this must be done safely, especially when it's in the context of existing abuse in relationships. And if you want to talk to me more about this, please ask another question and I'll follow it up next week or come and chat to me because, as I said, it's a big and complex situation. Question four, if someone bullies you, should you negotiate or retaliate? Well, generally speaking, retaliation is out of the question. Jesus said we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We should turn the other cheek. Uh, Now, that said, it's not always possible to negotiate with a bully, and you you may need to enlist some extra help to try and help this bully realise they've got to stop. So if it's at school, it would be a teacher. If it's at work, it may well be a supervisor or whoever. Uh, In the end, we should pray that the bully realises that they're doing the wrong thing and then that they should stop, repent and change their behaviour because that's really what we're wanting. Three to come. Question five, what happens to Christians in the time between when we die and when Jesus returns? Some people say that there is such a thing as soul sleep. Anyone ever... Kind of heard that expression before. It's a it's a way to describe, kind of like the moment that you die, you go to sleep. And the next thing you you realize when you wake kind of wake up is when Jesus returns to judge everybody. That's what soul sleep is called. I don't think that's the case, personally. See, Jesus told the criminal on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul could confidently say that when he died, he would be with Christ, which is better by far. And there are other examples as well. I think that what happens after our death is that we are conscious with Christ, that we're alert and aware of stuff. And if you are his friend, as I take it that most, if not all of us in this room are, that we're reconciled to him, then what will happen is we'll be with him and we'll be longing for the day when he finally returns to earth to judge the living and the dead. It's kind of like an expectation, it's an excitement. It's going to happen soon and so there's joy and there's peace and there's no more pain, but there's a waiting for that final moment. And likewise, those who are enemies with Christ will be saying, oh dear, judgment is coming. I made a very, very bad mistake, but I know I made that mistake and I was wrong. And they will wait for that judgment. Now there are different views about this so-called doctrine of the intermediate state and uh, different views amongst Christians. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter too much because if you're friends with Jesus, then whatever happens after you die, it's going to be good. Don't worry about it. But this is an interesting thing to ponder, isn't it? And uh, certainly it's, uh, it's, it's good to be thinking about things when it comes to the last days. Two to come. Why is it so hard to forgive people when they say sorry but keep doing the wrong thing? It's because when someone says to you, I am sorry then there is a cost when you say to them, I forgive you. Uh, We we try and tell our kids and others that that when someone says to you, I'm sorry, that you don't just say, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, I think the right response Christianly is to say, I forgive you. It's a bit more costly. And if you say to someone, I forgive you, then what you're actually saying is, I'm no longer out of relationship with you. I'm actually reconciled with you. I have peace with you. If you just say, yeah, don't worry about it, uh, there's a point where your anger still sort of can sit there. So it's an interesting thing if you do apologize to somebody, then if they say, I forgive you, you know that you've been reconciled. And someone says sorry to you, try saying, I forgive you. So if you do that and then they hurt you again, then you think, it was costly for me to say i forgive you and then they do it again then they do it again they do so why is it hard to forgive people when it's because it's costly and it hurts and it gives us a bit of a picture of what it means for god every time we say i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry and finally what do you do if your friend shuts you down when you try and talk to them about god well keep praying for them and don't give up don't stop You know, the only reason that I became a Christian is because of a supernatural event where God opened up my eyes to see that the truth of the gospel was true. You see, by default, I have a hard heart. We all do. Nobody is able to turn to God naturally. It's only a supernatural thing that a person would have a softened heart, that the Spirit of the Lord would open their eyes and bring them to want to follow Jesus. And so when you want your friend at school or your family member or the person you work with or the next door neighbour to become a Christian, then you are praying for something that is supernatural. It's not just a case of you doing the best sales job you can on them, as that's quite valuable, but it's about praying for them. So keep praying for them and keep praying for them and keep praying for them. Awesome questions. I look forward to some of the others that are already in the pipeline plus some others that you can ask as well.